I hate it when you have to try to stay awake. Don't you hate that? It's kind of, wow. That's a tough act to follow. Somebody said that to me outside. That's a tough act to follow. You, and you know, I was so touched during uh, that sermon. Uh, and I was so touched because it made me so humble when I realized how God is all over the world with people we don't even know. Can you imagine? There are these people in Romania we have no idea, no connection with, and here they are serving the same God that we are. When you think about it, it's so humbling. Uh, and to me, uh, I always said it's like we all travel with the same passport, Jesus. Jesus. And whenever you go in the world, when you meet a Christian, you look at his passport, he looks at yours. Immediately, you don't even have to say anything. Amen? You know, you understand. I want to, again, bring you up to speed as to where we're going with the lesson, where we're headed. As you know, we're on Acts 26, which is we are winding down on Acts. After Acts, uh, the Lord has put it on my heart uh, to do a series on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I believe that God really uh, has lessons for all of us especially the church, about what he really meant when he, when he gave the Beatitudes and he gave the Sermon on the Mount. I honestly believe that the church doesn't fully have an understanding of what that means. The world has no understanding. But even the church uh, needs to study and reflect and pray on the Sermon on the Mount. And so during the summer, I spent a considerable amount of time uh, working on that. And that will probably be about an uh, eight to ten week series. Uh, so uh, you'll pray for that as we move forward in that regard. Uh, then I, uh, I, I've learned that Hayes is going to do a series uh, on eschatology. John, you asked me, why do, will we get into something relating to the end times? And in February, Hayes will start something on that. I'm giving you some advanced knowledge that I have. I'm not sure I'm supposed to say it to anybody, but I'm sure... We'll just keep this between us. Uh, but uh, what's going to happen is there will be a series uh, that Hayes will do on eschatology in the end times. Uh, and our group, the BLGs, will each week do something in preparation for it. So you will be learning uh, firsthand about eschatology and the end times. You'll hear it here. You'll have it reinforced in church in the sermon. You'll hear it after church. So you folks will, uh, you're going to become experts on the end times, which the world needs to know about, because I'm convinced that it's not too far around the corner. Uh, and so that's kind of where the plan is. I also had a, a, a series that I started on the Gospel of John, which I hope to be able to, to do also. Uh, after that, so we'll see how the timing works. We'll leave ourselves open, but that's kind of the plan where we're headed. And it's amazing how the Holy Spirit works. Because I was preparing this lesson and, and studying my notes and going over everything that I'd written, and then God put it on my heart to add a section in the lesson that I hadn't had in before. And he just laid it on my heart. Uh, and... Uh, Barbara Hoff is in my early class, and she went to church last night. And when she heard this section, she goes, oh, my God, you're not going to believe it. What you just spoke about is what that guy spoke about last night in church. 
He said, it's, an, it's extraordinary that you've just mentioned this. And I said to her, you know, I hate it when they get my notes and pass them around ahead of time. <laughs> Do you ever find that problem, Gary, in your other class? Oh, it's a very annoying thing when they take my notes. It's, it's the Holy Spirit, you know? So, and, and the issue that, we, that I was discussing is, had you come to reflect at this point in Acts, you must, you must sit there and go back and say, this is unbelievable. What kind of human being is Paul? He is, we have now gone through, we are going to do today the fifth trial. The fifth trial in two years. Five hearings. And in every one, the conclusion is the same. He didn't do anything. We can't find a reason why he's, he's in prison. He hasn't violated any law, and he continues to be in chains. And month after month after month goes by. And, and the question becomes, don't you say to yourself, at what point do they, or does the church, begin to revolt against the government? That must come into your mind. At what point does the church say, this is enough? When do we stand up to the government? When do we oppose the government? When does the church as an institution say, this is enough? We can't stay here and see this is what's going on here. And what you're going to see here is uh, the theology of Paul. And the theology of Paul, as it relates to government, is in Romans chapter 13. And this is a, for those of you who are in my Monday morning group when we kick off uh, our Monday morning, which will probably be in sometime in November, I'll let you know about that. But if you would turn to Romans 13, Romans 13 will be the opening chapter that we do. And so when you say to yourself, when does the church say to the government, enough is enough? We cannot abide what's going on here. And I want you to listen to why Paul did not do that why the church did not do that at this particular time, and let's emphasize that, at this particular time, because you need to know that up to this point, Rome was not an enemy of the church. Rome did not strike out Christianity. Rome allowed Christians to worship. Okay? Uh, the persecutions had not yet started. They will. From this point in time, from this trial, probably in about eight, eight or, or so years, the persecutions will start under Nero, and then there will be wholesale killing and martyrdom, but that has not started yet. And I want you to read with me, if you could, just so that you get a sense of Paul's understanding of the role of government and God. Verse 1, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Let's, let's stop right there. God establishes government. Government doesn't exist by itself. It exists because God gives the government authority. God recognized in Genesis that mankind was sinful. And mankind needed government in order to control itself in this world. If we had no sin, we wouldn't need a government. But God established government 
because in fact God knew man was sinful and would be self-destructed. So man, so God establishes government. That does not mean that what government does is godly. It does not mean that what government always does is lawful. It does not mean that what government does is moral, but it means that the basic premise, the institution of government is established by the hand of God. Jesus turned to Pilate when Pilate said, you do not realize, but I have the authority to make you live or die. And Jesus said, by God above, you have that authority. By my Father, you have that authority. You don't have that authority from anybody other than God. And in fact, uh, Lincoln, when he, he wrote the Gettysburg Address, recognized that these rights, and, the, and the, these rights, going back to the Declaration of Independence, were derivative rights that God gave government. God allowed man to be governed by government. But God allowed it. So, we submit. Remember, God created three institutions. Family, the church, and government. Okay? Now, this gets complicated because it gets complicated when government does not act in an appropriate way. I just want to continue with Paul because I want you to see the theology of Paul, which is the theology of the church, which is how we act as Christians. All right? The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Now, I'm not going to read the entire chapter, but understand this. That presupposes a moral, godly government. What happens... What happens when government is immoral? What happens when government opposes God? What happens when the government decides to crush Christians, to destroy the church? What is the role of the Christian then? And I'm doing this all as a predicate to setting up what Paul is going through and seeing his mindset and understanding the dynamics of what's going on in, 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 that, in that time. This is an interesting book, Hitler's Cross, published by Moody Press, by Erwin Lutzer. Discusses what happened to the church in Germany prior to World War II. How many of you have read the book on Bonhoeffer by Metaxas? Okay, a lot of you. That's a book that you must read, okay? All 500 pages, right, Joan? <laughs> right? But the question becomes, how could a man, how could a man who was so pious, who wrote extensively in there about the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, how could such a man come to the point where he so actively opposed the government that he would be part of a small conspiracy to assassinate Hitler? How could that happen? It happens when the government becomes so evil incarnate that it loses the right to govern by God and it becomes a tool of Satan. And it's a, a very difficult point to understand and it's a fine line. So we balance, we balance Romans 13 
in which Paul talks about the fact that we submit ourselves. Yes, we submit. Yes, we submit. But there comes a time when government loses its right to be a government under the hand of God. And I want to give you an example of what went on in Germany and how many, many Christians sat by and did nothing. Did nothing. And allowed six million Jews to be murdered. And saw the churches wiped out. And saw pastors be executed and martyred and did nothing. And sat there and did nothing. And I want you to realize that this is important for you to know because the day may come when this may happen here. I pray to the Lord it doesn't happen here, but it can happen here. This is not a political statement I'm making. This is a theological statement. This has nothing to do with what, what particular party is in office. No party has a monopoly on godliness. All right? No party. All right? So the question becomes, what happens? What happens when government so loses its authority to govern by God and therefore... We no longer have to submit. I want to read to you what went on during uh, the Nazi party when they put a program together, a 30-point program that was drawn up by Hitler as to how they would address the national church. And you know that in Germany, the national church is the Lutheran church. All right? That was the national church. And it received uh, funding. And so they put together a program as to how they would attend to the churches in the Nazi regime. Here's, here's some of the points. Number one, the Na National Reich Church of Germany categorically claims the exclusive right and the exclusive power to control all churches within the borders of the Reich. It declares these to be national churches of the German Reich. Number two, the National Church demands immediate secession of the publishing and dissemination of the Bible in Germany. Next, the National Church declares that to it, and therefore to the German nation, it has been decided that the Fuhrer's Mein Kampf, his autobiography, is the greatest of all documents. It not only contains the greatest, but it embodies the purest and truest ethics for the present and future life of our nation. Next, the National Church will clear away from its altars all crucifixes, Bibles, and pictures of saints. Next, on the altars, there must be nothing but Mein Kampf to the German nation and therefore to God, the most sacred book, and to the left of the altar, a sword. Finally, on the day of its foundation, the Christian Church must be removed. The Christian cross must be removed from all churches cathedrals and chapels and it must be superseded by the only unconquerable symbol the swastika now now how can you as a christian in a country like that submit yourself to a government like that you understand you cannot it has lost its morality to be submitted to there's no right to submit when, in fact, the government is now co-opted by Satan. All right? That did not yet happen. That did not happen here yet. 
Paul is being given freedom. He's being given the right to a trial. He has the right to have witnesses, right? He's not being uh, persecuted yet. Yes, he's in chains, but he's allowed to have visitors. There's a procedure that's being applied. We're moving to that point. We're not there yet at this period of time. And so I'm giving you this because I want you to get a sense and a flavor for how the Christians, you would say to me, well, Brother John, how are they going to oppose Rome? Well, you know that there's many ways that they could oppose it without visibly creating, creating a war. They could be passive aggressive. They could do so many things, but we don't see that here. We see them submitting themselves. But there will come a time, there will come a time when the churches will be attempted to be wiped out. And what I submit to you, dear brothers and sisters, that I'm fearful that there will come a time in this country, in the latter days, when that will happen. Yes, sister? Yes, I did read that. That was interesting to me because you know that I started my Bible study at home. God knows that we are in very difficult times, but I'm telling you, if you study when the last times come, what you will see, this nothing pales. Everything pales in comparison to that. There will come a time, there will come a time in this country that the only way you will be able to get food, the only way you will be able to buy supplies, the only way you will be able to get paid, the only way you will be able to enter the stream of com commerce in any possible way will be to have the number of the beast on your body. Now, I don't know how that will be. I don't know if it'll be a microchip. I don't know exactly what it will be. But I can tell you this. The only way you will be able to work and walk around in this world is to have the number of the beast on you. And I can tell you this. I can tell you this, sure as there is a tomorrow. No matter what you do, I heard a pastor say it, and he did, said it far more eloquently than I could ever say it. Whatever you do, if you don't listen to anything else you've ever heard here, do not take the mark of the beast. Amen. Ever, 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 ever. Because if you do, you will be barred from heaven forever. The mark of the beast. Now, if you think... If you think, if you think that that's going to be an easy thing to do, boy, I'm sorry to tell you. I'm sorry to tell you. It's not like being here in this room and everybody's supporting you and everybody's behind you and praying for you. No, it won't be like that on that day. It won't be like that on that day because on that day you're going to be by yourself because everybody else will have taken it. And remember, the rapture will have preceded it. So all of the Christians will have been sucked out of this world. And the only people left will be those who have not given their heart to God. They'll still have a chance. But now, there's going to be a lot of pain. There's going to be a lot of suffering. And so if you think about it, you think about it, how this is. That's why the astonishing thing is you have to say to your friends, to your family. You need to tell them these stories. You need to say to them, I love you. You have to understand, if we're raptured tomorrow, if the church is taken out of this world tomorrow, okay, what's going to be left is those who are going to be left are going to have to face up to the mark of the beast. And if you think it's going to be easy for you to turn down the mark of the beast, then you haven't really understood what it means, what torture will be like. 
And that's why you have to say to your family, go now, give your heart to God now. Give your heart to God now. Bow before the altar and repent and give your heart to God because you don't want to be here after the rapture, amen? You do not want to be here after the rapture. You want to be gone. Is that enough eschatology for now, John? <laughs> yes, Marm. We don't have to wait for the rapture to see that uh, just to receive health care, you may not need the mark of the beast, but you better bow to the beast. <laughs> uh, sad, sad but true. On our website is a phenomenal sermon. It was given by a pastor from the Fort Lauderdale Baptist Church. I believe that's still on the homepage of the website. Go to the website. Take a look at that sermon. Listen to it. I've heard people here that have done it. You listen to it, and then you, you know, you'll get on your knees and pass it to your family and friends. It's an extraordinary sermon. When he gave that sermon, Larry Thompson gave that sermon in church, hundreds of people came forward. Hundreds of people, because the question was, do you think it's going to be easy to turn down the mark of the beast? Or is it now your time when everybody here, there's 2,000 people that love you and are supportive of you and are here, and now you can give your heart freely to God and never worry about the mark of the beast. You don't have to, you won't be here. You won't be here. That won't be your issue. Take a look at the website. Listen to that sermon. It'll bless your heart. Yes, Joan. Uh, where is it on the website, Linda? Okay. What happens if you miss the rapture? Sobering. Sobering. Yes, Harry. Also, in Bonhoeffer, you know, people that he went to seminary with slowly slid into nationalism where they said, you know, they freaked out, and it's like a fling of frog in a, in a cool pot of water. They, they were slowly made compromises, and he was shocked at some of the people he, he knew personally that were making those decisions. Because you know why Kerry, Kerry said Bonhoeffer was shocked at people that he saw migrating over to nationalism and getting comfortable with the Reich, people he had gone to seminary with. Because you know what it is? He's right. It's like putting a frog in water and turning up the heat slowly and slowly. And in the beginning, it's not a problem. Well, we can compromise a little bit here. We compromise a little bit there. And the next thing you know is my grandfather used to say we're in Egypt. That's what my grandfather used to say. We're in Egypt. Okay? And that wasn't a place if you were Jewish you, want, you didn't want to be during biblical times. Yes, Ray. In the 1960s, uh, I and lots of people like me, I suppose, said we're never going to give our social security number to anyone. <laughs> Today, I mean, can you think about it? It's impossible. You can't, you can't do anything unless you have a social security number, and you are asked for it all the time. You know, with computer chips, being what they are. We all have pets. Every one of our pets has one of those numbers in it. You know where, it's, you know where we're headed. This is no surprise, okay? It's not going to be a surprise. It'll be some kind of innocuous thing, but you're hearing it here. Do not take the mark of the beast. So let's go to Acts 26. Uh, it's, it's on the prayer sheet. If you pick up the prayer sheet, you'll see it right on there. All right, thanks to Joan who has printed that Thank you, sister. And one of the things I want to promise you this is I will never go beyond noon. Okay? I, I will not go beyond noon because I know what it is. You're hungry. You're tired. And I promise you this. And my wife's responsibility at like two minutes before noon is to stand up. So if you see Linda standing up, 
That's the signal of me to shut your big mouth, let these people go home and eat. All right? Acts 26, verse 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, and remember, we, he, we now brought Agrippa in, who is the uh, king of the Jews, uh, comes from a great line of family. His grandfather basically tried to kill Jesus in Bethlehem. Uh, his father uh, uh, effectively killed John the Baptist. The uncle was involved in killing uh, uh, Andrew. This is a wonderful family. And now he's listening to Paul's fifth trial. But Paul is glad he's there because finally he's got a Jewish scholar to listen to his defense. So he's got someone who understands the scripture, who at least has an intellectual knowledge of the scripture. And now we're going to go through this trial. And listen to this. While he's in this and defending himself, he's in chains. So get the picture of this man, this servant of God, this holy man in chains in his fifth trial in two years. An innocent man now defending himself. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hands and began his defense. Somebody asked me in the early class, why, why did he motion with his hand? I said, I, I don't know. He may have been part Italian. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it was to probably quiet things down because I'm sure there was a major mob there listening to him. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today. As I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you, my brother, are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. I beg you to listen to me patiently. Who better than you? A Jew, a scholar, well-trained. You're going to understand what I'm talking about. Verse 4, the Jews all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child. From the beginning of my life, in my own country and also in Jerusalem. Oh, they know me. They know me, Agrippa. They know me. They know that I studied at Gamaliel. They know that I was in the Sanhedrin. They know that I was there when Stephen was martyred. Oh, they know me. And they know what I did. They know I traveled all over the world on behalf of Judaism and on behalf of the chief priests. They know me well. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, and underline that strictest sect of our religion, by the way, Agrippa, you ought to know, I'm a real Jew. I'm a Pharisee. I'm not one of those Sadducees. I'm in the strictest sect. That's what that meant. That was code language. I'm a Pharisee. I believe in the entire scripture. I believe in the bodily resurrection of the dead. I, I believe in a life afterwards. The Sadducees don't believe in any of that. So I want you to know what you're dealing with here. I am a Jew. I lived as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. Why am I on trial? I'm only on trial because I am talking about the promise that God made to Abraham that he would take his seed and from his seed he would, he would bring the Messiah and that Messiah would save all of Judea and all of Israel first and eventually the world. That's all I'm giving you, the very promise of our fathers. 
and it is because of that that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. Can you imagine? The 12 tribes of Israel every day would go to the temple, go to the synagogue, because they were constantly concerned and worshiping about the coming of the Messiah. And yet right in the midst of the ceremonies, right in the midst of religious practices, right in the midst of everything that they were doing in a ceremonial way, the living God came and presented himself, and they murdered him. It's, it takes your breath away. I mean, the danger for us is let us not be so confused and wound up in our so-called religious practices that we're blinded by our religious practices not to understand and see the true meaning of God. It's an important lesson for us. Because these people thought they were serving God. They saw, thought they were worshiping God as they went out week after week to the temple. And instead, they wound up murdering the Son of God. Why should you, why should you, any of you, consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Read your Bible. He raised the dead in the Bible. We know that he's done it before. Why is it so incredible that he could raise Jesus from the dead? Verse 9, I was convinced that I, that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Now you're going to hear his testimony. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. And now you're going to hear it for the third time in Acts as he's relating to you again his own testimony. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Oh, Lord, what do you think this was like? What do you think it was like when he said, I cast my vote against them to die? He's talking about Stephen. I'm sure not a day in his life went by when he didn't reflect upon the fact that he was there voting to murder Stephen. That he was there to hold the cloaks of the people who would pick up the rocks and pick up the stones and use it to murder Stephen. He would hold their clothes, hold their coats, so that they would be free to hurl the stone better and kill him quicker. And he would be part of that. What do you think it was like for him to recognize that he was a part of that? We're going to study... We're going to study the Beatitudes. And the first Beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. You want to know what poor in spirit is? Poor in spirit is reflecting upon your total deprivation as a man. That you look upon yourself and you look deep within yourself. And when you look deep within yourself, what do you see? You see the man who voted against Stephen. You see the man who assisted in the stoning. You see the man who traveled all over the world killing Christians. And yes, you're saved by the grace of Jesus. But the thing is, with your poverty of spirit, the poor in spirit recognized that without God, without the graciousness of God, you are doomed. You are nothing. And that is why the first beatitude, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. 
All the other Beatitudes follow, blessed are the poor in spirit, because without being poor in spirit, you're going nowhere. You're going nowhere. You're, you have no Christian life. If you in any way have pride and look at your own gifts and talents and think about what you're doing, you're going nowhere. It's only when you are reduced to understanding the poverty of spirit and reflect deeply on yourself that you understand that. I am convinced that one of the great aspects of this man was despite his tremendous gifts and talent, where he could speak to thousands of people, that he, in his heart he was so humbled and reduced by understanding where he had come and how God had saved him that he really was wired in. You want to be plugged in? It starts with being poor in spirit. Amen. On the authority of the chief priest, I put many of the saints in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. Can you imagine? I tried and made them blaspheme their God. It wasn't enough that I stopped them. I wanted them to blaspheme God. I mean, really. In my obsession, and underlying that, obsession, Okay? This wasn't merely a man looking at his ritual, religious ritual practices. This is what happened when Satan takes hold of us. Satan takes hold of us. It becomes an obsession, and Satan says, beautiful, great. This is just what I need to make you my disciple. You will look like you're religious, and instead I'm going to make you my tool, and you will serve me. That's what happens when you see the word, in my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to, per to persecute them. And now you're going to hear his testimony on the road to Damascus, a hundred miles or so away from Jerusalem, on a dusty road, traveling five days later. Nobody out there except himself and a couple of traveling companions. And on one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests about noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. Oh, dear Lord. Can you imagine what that had to be like? It was brighter than the sun. We're in the desert. He's in the desert. There are no clouds. There's no moisture. There's nothing but the blazing sun. And yet amidst this scene with the sun blazing, this light comes that dwarfs the sun. Can you imagine what that's like? And what do we know? We know that that's a fact. That when God appears to man, the light of God is so strong that we can't look at it. You remember Moses? Do you remember on the mount when he got the Ten Commandments? Do you remember when he said, well, God, I want to see you? I want to see what you look like. And God said, man can't see me but I'll allow you to see my shadow from behind the rock. And what happened when Moses came down? Remember? He had to wear a veil because the light, reflected light off his face was so bright that the human beings with him couldn't look at him. The reflected light from God who stood behind a rock. So you understand when we talk about lightness and darkness, the light of the world and why man abhors the light, and we're drawn to the darkness. You understand everything, all the theological components that come together here. And so now he's seeing the purest light of the creation, Jesus coming down 
and, and visiting him. About noon, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic. Underline that. That's the first time you will understand that God, Jesus, spoke to him in Aramaic. The actual language that Jesus would have used. He didn't speak to him in Greek. He didn't speak to him in formal Hebrew. He spoke to him in Aramaic, which was basically a sub-language of Hebrew. He spoke to him, and, and, and obviously, in the most familiar language in, in, in which he says, says to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Meaning, you know, you know what you should be doing. And you are having a hard time fighting against it. And your conscience, when you really reflect upon it, is bothered and disturbed. And the Holy Spirit has been working on you. And you know it. You don't tell anybody, but you know it. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? And I love the way that question is posed. Which, the other way of looking at that question is, oh my, I think you're Jesus. Please tell me you're not. Can you imagine? Don't say Jesus. Who are you, Lord? I'm 90% sure. I think I know who you are. But who for sure are you? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. You know what struck me there? It's like a double whammy to the chest. I'm Jesus. And by the way, you're persecuting me. You think he had to be told he was persecuting him? He didn't need, he didn't need anybody to say you're persecuting me. He knew full well what he was doing. When he heard the words, I am Jesus, it, to me it's like, whenever we, we, we would have witnesses in court and somebody would put their best witness up, some expert witness, to testify against us, I always made it a point, as quickly in the proceedings as I could, to hit them with a question I knew that they weren't prepared to answer. The lawyers in this group will understand why you do that. It's like getting a fastball to your head. You go up and you're all prepared, you're ready, you got your notes, and you're ready to go, and all of a sudden, the lawyer takes and hits you with a fastball right here, and now you mess that question up. You've not answered it correctly. And for the vast majority of people, what happens after that? They can't hear. They can't hear. Because all they're reflecting upon is the fact that they messed up that answer. And the whole time you're asking other questions, they keep reflecting back, oh, I could have answered that better. That was a mistake. It's almost like, I'm sure, what happened here when... When Jesus said, I'm Jesus, and Paul probably went, you know, whom you're persecuting. He probably never heard the word you're persecuting. He probably never heard the word whom you are persecuting. Now get up, stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant, as a, as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people. Underline that. Jesus, why do you have to rescue me from my pals, the Jews? They love me. 
Oh, they will never have a problem with them. <laughs> they think I'm the greatest. I'm sure I'm going to have a remarkable ministry amongst the Jews who have long admired and respected me. Oh, really, brother? That's what you think? You see, that's where we that's the human part of us. You know, they will they will think highly of me. They know my background. They will look at my education. They understand I'm one of them. Not so quick, brother. Not so quick. Jesus sees around the bend. He sees around the corner. You see five feet in front. No, I'm going to protect you from them uh, I, and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light. You like that? Darkness to light. That was Jesus telling him. Turning them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. It's that clear. If you're not with him, you're against him. If you're not with him, you're with Satan. This is not a 50-50 proposition. Okay? You know, you hear the world. There's a thousand ways. I'm sorry, folks. You know, I'm sorry. I'd like to be able to tell people, yeah, you're right. You're a reasonable person. You seem good to me. You know, I'm not that good. I have so many problems in my own life. The only thing that's saving me is I gave my heart to Jesus. You want to say, well, you know, we're all brothers of man. We're all part of one family. Jesus didn't say it. Jesus didn't say it. And you, you, you read the Gospel of John. He reiterated it over and over. They are, have to be delivered from the power of Satan so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, you want to see the theology of Paul? Here's the theology of Paul given to you. It's not Paul's theology. It's Jesus. Jesus gave Paul the theology. All right? And here it is. Justification. Justification by repentance of sin. Fully justified. What follows next? Sanctification. Meaning fully sanctified by a lifetime of living with, as a Christian with the Lord. Followed by glorification. Your body glorified as your body is, and spirit are brought before the Heavenly Father. You want to see what, what the plan is? What God's plan for Christianity is? It's very simple. So then King Agrippa, and, and by the way, the question becomes, well, how did he become so astute? How, how, did, how did he learn? What seminary did he go to? I never really found that. What seminary did Paul go to to understand who gave him all this Christian theology? Galatians, please. Open your Bible to Galatians. Chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 11. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Do you like that? All right? You like that? So, folks, you have a problem with Pauline theology? Tell Jesus. All right? If there's some issue that Paul has given that he writes about that you, you, you find yourself not really in conformity with it, disturbing, doesn't really, you're uncomfortable with it, his issues about morality and homosexuality, 
and all those things that Paul writes. You're not, you don't, I disagree with Brother Paul. You know, he's 2,000 years old. You know, it's a different time. We have to look at the context, societal context. What were the mores of that time? We need to understand that. We are much more sophisticated today. Folks, talk to Jesus. Because he got it directly from Jesus, which to me is pretty sobering. Meaning, God trained him, taught him. No man taught him. No apostle taught him. He didn't get it from a book. By the way, the New Testament wasn't around. Two-thirds of what we have in the New Testament today are his writings. Two-thirds. So we didn't have the New Testament to look at. It all came by divine revelation. It's just an extraordinary thing. And so... So then King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and to all Judea. That is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts. That's why I'm here, because I'm giving this message, and that's why they tried to kill me. But I have had God's help to this day, and so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Christ would suffer. And as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to his Gentiles. Very simple, Agrippa. Very simple. This is why I'm here, that they don't want to hear it. And now Festus, the, the Roman governor, speaks up in verse 26 and says, You are out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning is driving you insane. I would expect nothing more than from somebody, from a Roman trained in, by, uh, in Greek studies. They have no understanding, had no background in the scripture, but Agrippa did. He did. He understand. And listen to what Paul says. I am not insane, most excellent Festus. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. He knows. He knows. He went to Sunday school. He learned. He knows the prophets. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Now think about the irony of a man in chains on trial turning to the king and effectively putting him on trial. Do you, do you believe? Do you believe what the scripture says? Do you believe what God told his people? Do you believe the promise of the covenant? Do you believe? You studied. You know it. You know what it says. Do you believe? Do you believe? And Grippa says to him, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? And the answer is, Yes. Through the Holy Spirit. Not me, but yes. Through the Holy Spirit. It can take a second. Yes, sister. That's right. I believe that's the King James Version. Yes. In, in many ways, I like that version better in that, in that particular. I am almost persuaded. Do you remember who else was almost persuaded? Pilate was almost persuaded. Remember when his wife couldn't sleep all night long? and had nightmares because she knew he was putting an innocent man to crucifixion? Do you remember? 
And here's the point of this. Here's the point in this. There is, through the Holy Spirit, a temporary gift of grace that God gives to sinners to understand their need for a Savior. There's a moment in time, destiny comes and gives someone and touches their heart. And let me tell you, folks, if they walk away from that, there's no guarantee that they will ever have a chance again. Okay? And all we are is the messenger. All we are is the messenger. We're not the Savior. We're only the messenger. And I want to just skip down to verse 32 to close this out. Agrippa said to Festus at the end of the trial, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. My comment on that is hogwash. Okay? Hogwash. Cop out. Loser. Okay? Okay? Loser. You should have set him free immediately. Immediately. And now the judgment remains on you and on them. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we're so grateful for the words that you've given us, Lord. We ask you that they continue to touch our heart, that we reflect on it in this coming week, Lord, that they grow in our hearts, that we put these lessons to, to our life, Lord, that we touch the world with them. I ask you also, Lord, that you continue to bless this class in every way and protect them so that they can come back again to continue this study. And we put all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.